Be en route to Grimes and Walnut for a disorderly mail causing problems in the store. Oliver was at it again. Oliver had spent his life in mental health facilities, but by 1994, the state hospital had closed and Oliver was on his own. We never wanted to arrest him. We knew jail wasn't where he should be. But when he went into stores and tore the place up, yelling and screaming, we had to do something with him. So he went to jail. As we pulled into the sally port at the jail, it took four of us to wrestle Oliver out of the car. He was still screaming and kicking and flailing. We made our way into the booking room, still fighting him, when a solitary jail officer walked into the room. He had a spray bottle in his hand and squirted Oliver three times with water. Oliver stopped fighting immediately and calmed down. You feel better now, Oliver? The jailer asked. Yes, sir, was all he said. That's where I learned the value of smarter, not harder. It's time to start telling our own stories. I'm Steve Kellums, and welcome to Blue Canary. There are several sides to law enforcement. Patrol, detectives, administration, public safety, dispatch, and the one I never had any experience with, corrections. A correction officer is an officer responsible for the custody, safety, security, and supervision of inmates in a prison, jail, or any other correctional facility. My career had been spent on the streets, and while I never had any experience working inside a facility, I had always been smart enough to recognize that corrections officers were simply cops indoors. But they do face their own sets of specific challenges that those of us outside the walls just don't understand. I needed someone who did, so I reached out to my good friend Jeff Carter. Jeff retired in December of 2018 as the deputy director of the Fayette County Detention Center in Lexington, Kentucky. Over his 20-year career, he's worked at all levels of custody inside a 1,300-bed correctional facility. Currently, Jeff is a nationally recognized expert witness in jail litigation and an instructor with his own company, Carter Consulting Incorporated. I wanted to know what were some of the critical issues that were facing corrections officers today. I'm not an expert in corrections issues, and I needed some help. Jeff was gracious enough to talk to me and discuss what was going on behind the walls. And what's going on behind those walls is unbelievable. Jails and prisons were designed to house criminals against society, but today they're often used to house the mentally ill. Once again, the system is being used to do something it was never designed to do, and that's a challenge being faced daily by the men and women working in corrections. We talked about that and a few other issues jails are dealing with on a daily basis. There's one thing about uh, my profession. Think about jails, of course. You say you're not an expert, and, and a lot of folks in the society aren't experts either because those walls are built for a reason. They're to keep the bad guys in. But unfortunately, an effect of that is it keeps the good folks out. And when we have something like that, it causes a lot of in, in our communities not to really know and understand what it's really like to work inside of a correctional facility. That can be a detriment to us at times. Or, you know, when it comes time for funding and things like that, they're like, well, it seems to be I'm not hearing anything, so it must be going good. I mean, one of the biggest issues is mental health, dealing with our mental health folks. The population is coming in with mental illnesses. Say back in the probably late 70s, early 80s, just to give an example, state of Kentucky. In the state of Kentucky, at that time, we probably had approximately 5,000 mental health beds in our state that would deal with the mentally ill folks and, and their issues. Today, we're lucky if we have 500 beds in those state hospitals and things like that. So whenever I teach a class, I always ask the group, does that mean that the state of Kentucky has basically solved mental illness? And everyone agrees with me, no, that wasn't it. So what's happened? Well, basically everyone agrees too, to the answer to that is, it's the lack of funding. 
Now, I can recall back during that time when we were seeing on TV these horrendous conditions that was going on inside of these mental health hospitals. I can see that. And what they basically did was instead of fixing the problem, they would show this video clip of a horrendous condition of a person. Basically, they were warehousing the mentally ill. That's how to look at it. Okay. So what they said was, is instead of coming up and fixing that problem, they basically threw the baby out with the bathwater and just shut the facility down. Well, that didn't cure mental illness in shutting that mental health hospital down. All it did was shove those people out the doors. And then where do they normally come then? They have some type of interaction, you know, with you, law enforcement, and then in turn comes to us in the jail. In the 19th and 20th centuries, warehousing of mentally ill people became the standard. The mental institutions became overcrowded and required more funding and support to provide for their patients. The overcrowding and lack of funding, particularly during economic downturns and wartime, led to serious issues within the institutions. Asylums became notorious for poor living conditions, lack of hygiene, overcrowding, ill treatment, and abuse of patients. In the 1950s, antipsychotic drugs became more common, which led to the push for deinstitutionalization. Between 1950 and 1994, roughly 487,000 mentally ill patients were discharged from mental institutions. While this was undoubtedly a good move for some of those patients, others just can't function outside of a facility. Whether it's the lack of support, refusal to take their medication, or lack of access to mental health resources, some people end up coming into contact with law enforcement. We try our best to get them the proper care, but in some instances, there's nowhere to take them. They can't be left on their own because they are dangerous to themselves and others or so disruptive that they need to be removed from the public space. Many times, with no options, we must enforce the crimes that have been committed, even if it's not the best place for the offender. So we end up at the jail. In my facility, we had a 1,300-bed jail, and we had a high number of mentally ill inmates, and we had a great, robust mental health program with a group of mental health counselors. We trained our staff in dealing with the mentally ill, but we still were not prepared to deal with these folks and give them the help that they need. So they were warehousing the mentally ill back in the day in mental health hospitals. Today, it's kind of looked at as we're the, we're the new asylums compared to back then. The jails are. I don't understand why it was not okay to warehouse the mentally ill in state hospitals back then, but it's okay to warehouse them now in our jails. It makes no sense. Jails have become the new asylums. Mentally ill people who have committed crimes are being warehoused in the jails because we don't know what else to do with them. But if we're going to use the jails as de facto mental hospitals, then they should have all the same resources to treat the mental illnesses that the traditional mental hospitals would have, such as doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health nurses, etc. We do have, in our situation, we do have great resources to where we have our own mental health counselors and everything, trained, licensed folks that come in and perform those duties. But many facilities around this country do not have that access to those resources. It's a problem. So at best, some of those institutions will have on-call folks. They will be able to make a phone call to someone coming in. There's some web-based mental health resources that you can obtain now. But as far as having that face-to-face with those mentally ill folks inside of your institution, it's just non-existent for the most part. Since the resources to treat the mentally ill are not commonly available in correction facilities across the country, are the corrections officers being trained to deal with the mentally ill? Are they receiving proper training, supervision, and guidance to help them make decisions regarding inmates' behavior and how it might relate to mental illness? Okay, just to give you an example, when I started back in 99 in the business, if I'd have had a person standing inside their cell 
I told the person, okay, I'm coming in and do your cell check. Get on your bunk, okay? 1999, more than likely, if I'd have told that person to get on their bunk and they just stood there and looked at me, well, the next time I would have gave them the same directive, but with a little louder tone, a little more abrasive, and I would have basically directed them to get on their bunk. I'm coming in to do your cell check. And then that person would, again, continue to stare at me. The third time I would tell them, you either get on your bunk now or I'm going to come in and I'm going to put you on your bunk. And if they didn't then, I would then enter that cell and place that person on their bunk and probably not the nicest way. Basically, it's a use of force. Now, what I wouldn't have known was is that this person is actually dealing with schizophrenia. So what I wouldn't have understood was that this person basically didn't hear a word that I was telling them to do. They couldn't follow my directions because they didn't hear my directions. So now I've given a use of force, potential injury for the inmate, potential injury for staff, all because I didn't have an understanding of the mental illness. Now, today, I would have had that understanding in my facility. What we would have done, we would have called mental health counselors to come and do an assessment. Now, granted, sometimes those folks are just dealing with some behavioral issue, but we want those licensed professionals to come in and assess and get that intervention as early as possible to help resolve that. One of the things that's out there right now that is to help with dealing with the mentally ill is CIT training. It's it's crisis intervention team. Uh, the National Institute of Corrections has some training out there for that. They actually come in and put on a presentation. It's like a week long, I think it is, where they actually bring in actors from the local community, from the local college, and they show them how to act and portray a mentally ill inmate in different scenarios. What CIT basically is, is a verbal de-escalation techniques, okay? trying to help get the individual to see a, a different way of thinking, change their thought process, and get them to be more compliant with whatever needs to happen, they need to go to the hospital or what have you. But they failed to train those deputies inside the jail. Why? Where does these folks go? An officer out on the street may deal with a mentally ill person, depending on how long the situation actually occurs, but say 30, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour. But your jail officers are going to be dealing with this person for days. And it is shown that a person with a mental illness will spend more time in a facility as far as days, average stay, depending on what area you're in, but average stay, for example, would be uh, 27 days. Well, someone with a mental illness, their average stay may be 40 to 50 days due to the fact they're not following the orders inside of the facility, they're not following the rules, they're getting written up, and they're getting criminal charges sometimes thrown on them due to that fact. Sometimes their mental illness is taken into consideration Sometimes it's not. So dealing with the mentally ill inside of the institutions right now, we are basically having, we're forced to deal with them, but overall we're not prepared. In this country, over 2 million people enter a correctional facility each year with some type of severe mental illness. And we are not prepared to handle those folks in an appropriate manner. Corrections officers overall are not properly trained to deal with the challenges presented by mentally ill inmates. While some facilities have the necessary resources and training does exist for officers, it just isn't universally used. Is cost the issue? And how big a problem is it? Average cost of a person in jail for the nation right now could cost around, say, $10,000, whereas a person with a mental illness, due to the fact of their psych meds, the counseling and all that stuff, if they get to receive that, if they're lucky enough, could run into $30,000, dollars and due to the fact that the, the, the psych meds are very costly if they're in a single cell. So, of course, that raises the uh, the number up. Now, you know, we're talking severe mental illness. But uh, what percentage of jail inmates do you feel have antisocial personalities for having that? Behavior would be lying, disregard for their own safety, 
disregard for other safety. So something, some mild things that we see. And the numbers of the percentages I get is 80%, 85%, 90%. And I agree with that. That just has, again, antisocial personalities. Over 80% of inmates have antisocial behavior. Antisocial behavior, actions that harm or lack consideration for the well-being of others. This is a type of behavior that violates the basic rights of another person or is disruptive to society. It shouldn't come as a surprise that this type of behavior dominates the inmates in a correctional facility. But when we talk about mental health issues, we're going deeper than basic antisocial behavior. What types of mental illness are common inside the jails, and do you have to accept them into the facility? Depression is very common. Of course, you're, you're locked up, so of course it's, it's understood that it would be. Uh, but then, of course, you get up into the schizophrenia, and uh, we're now seeing a number of people with autism coming into the facility. When I started back in 99, I cannot recall one person coming into my facility with autism. Now, it's not that it's increased, I don't think, from based on what the figures show since then, but the increase of them coming into the facility has. And there's, and there's different theories out there as to why, but they're coming into the facility. Normally, two to three days is what they stay. And you know, a lot of your mentally ill people coming in, they're not in for major charges. They're normally in for shoplifting, trespassing, trying to find a place warm to sleep, trying to get some food. In most cases, your mentally ill are the victims of the crime out in the community more so than they are the perpetrator. Jails have a option of accepting an inmate or not, but normally it's on the medical side when we would refuse someone. The rule of thumb for that is, is if you can't medically take care of that person in their current situation, that's when we then would refuse the person have them sent back to the hospital for a clearance. And then, of course, they're brought back to the facility. It would be very difficult for someone coming in under a mental health issue, I would find, as a jail administrator, I would find it very difficult to not accept someone on a mental illness. Because here's the thing, too, about mental illness. No one normally dies of a mental illness. They may die of an indirect cause from that mental illness. And that's, again, that's a layman talking to you. I'm not a psychiatrist. Just I'm just basing these observations from my training and experience throughout the, my time since 1999 of working in the facilities. Addiction issues are often tied with mental health issues. I've heard from students that it's very common for inmates being booked into jails to be suffering from some type of addiction. How do these addiction issues affect the correctional facilities? There's a high number of folks coming into our facilities right now uh, with a co-occurring issues. One, they have a mental illness. And then two, they have a substance abuse problem. You have to try to work with both of those at the same time, trying to deal with and, and trying to resolve those issues with these folks. And then sometimes you'll have someone coming in and they will have a bout of psychosis from the drug. So they really don't have a mental illness long term, but they're having a bout of psychosis due to the fact that it's been triggered by the drug use, the substance abuse that they've had coming in. Of course, marijuana is very common. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not a proponent of the drug business. I'm not saying let's legalize all the drugs and then we're going to, you know, it's going to save the world by far. But currently, I would much rather have 10 inmates coming into my jail who has been out smoking a half a pound of marijuana. I'd rather have 10 of those inmates coming into my jail than I had one who is intoxicated on alcohol, the legal stuff, because you're much more apt to die from alcohol withdrawal as you are from smoking a half a pound of marijuana. And again, I'm I'm not a proponent of of legalizing drugs, but looking at the facts, if you legalize marijuana right now in the state of Kentucky, we're going to open up beds inside of our jails and again, open them up for those individuals coming in that may have some type of a withdrawal symptom 
of a substance that they may actually die from. Should communities start working towards alternatives to the jails for mental health issues? Should they stop arresting people who are clearly suffering from mental illness and find other places to take them? As we've already said, without options, jails are the place these people end up, whether they should be there or not. I strongly agree with that. And these states need to start funding some type of diversion programs. And one of the things that our mental health hospitals have done is they've made the criteria so strict that, well, if you've committed a crime above a certain level, and it's usually very low, you can't come into our facility. Well, the only other place we can take you is the local jail. And we're not mental health counselors. If they're lucky, they will have those on staff or at least on call, or they may have access to the phone where they can call someone to do some type of a, an assessment or triage over the telephone. But we need some type of an intervention, some type of diversion program. And there's been some started throughout the country. Uh, I know Houston had one at one time because I was had a class I was teaching uh, down in Corpus Christi, matter of fact, and I had some folks from the Houston area. And I don't know if it's still there or not, but I know it was then. And I asked them, how's the mental health issues there in Houston? And they said, we don't have any. I said, you don't have any mental health inmates in your facility? And they said, no. I said, so you're telling me, I guess Houston's cured their mental illness there in, the, in that town? And uh, they said, no, they have an actual diversion program where the person is actually taken to the hospital instead of to, to a correctional facility. And that's what needs to be seen around the country in order to deal with this. Now, in my opinion, we're going to be saving some money. By doing that, statistics have shown out there that you're going to be saving money when you have these diversion type programs and a more robust mental health programs in the community that I can come to and get some assistance with before I get to the level of needing to be arrested. But yes, I strongly believe that our communities need to step in uh, wherever the money needs to come from, national, maybe on the federal level, uh, some assistance with that. But uh, I know we've been working very closely with our NAMI the National Association for the Mentally Ill in Lexington, uh, Kentucky. And, and they were, they're a great group. Uh, they see what, you know, we're, we're both on the same side. We're both on the same team of trying to get something other than going to, to jail being the outcome for some of these folks that are suffering from the mental illness. What is one thing that administrators and jailers can be doing to help them deal with mental illness inside the facility? Getting some type of mental health training, such as the CIT training I brought up earlier, training your staff to know, because we know the top two reasons our jails are getting sued. One is excessive use of force, and two is uh, medical negligence. Well, both of those could potentially fall under dealing with a mentally ill inmate. Training staff that just because this inmate is being non-compliant, that maybe he's not wanting to be non-compliant, but due to the fact of his mental illness. So getting staff trained from a mental health standpoint, on what they're dealing with. Now, we're not making them licensed clinical psychological or psychiatrist or even at a lower level of education. We're just giving them an exposure as to what you're dealing with, the common mental illnesses that you deal with in a correctional system. I teach primarily outside of the state of Kentucky sheriff's deputies. In Kentucky, our sheriffs have nothing to do with our jails. But outside is all primarily I teach sheriff's deputies. And whenever we have a budget crisis come up at the sheriff's office, and I step on some of these sheriff's toes whenever they have some of them in my classes, the first cut that they want to do to the budget, okay, it goes to the jail. Well, all right, jail administrators, the first cut that they want to make is training. The jail in those communities is the biggest liability that that community has. You've got 50, 100, or 1,000 folks sitting in there waiting on you to bat your eyes the wrong way so they can file some type of a lawsuit. And if they can prove that you violated their civil rights, you're going to be paying a checkout. 
if you think training is expensive, you ought to try ignorance. See how expensive that is. You think training is expensive, you ought to try ignorance. That should be a mantra taken up by all public safety officials. Police officers are terribly undertrained, and corrections officers are even worse. Housing of inmates is one of the highest liability issues in public safety, yet the training that corrections officers receive is often half that of the patrol officer. That's right, half. Housing inmates is expensive. Building facilities is expensive. Feeding inmates is expensive. The funds get short very quickly, and when they're looking to cut budgets, it's always in training. The lack of funds to properly train your officers is an epidemic in public safety and needs to be changed. Officers are being put into extremely stressful and dangerous situations daily, and when they're expected to make do without proper training, they don't stay very long. When you have high turnover, you lose the institutional knowledge and experience. Tie that in with a lack of training, and you have a typical jail in the U.S. How do we keep those officers whose knowledge and experience are critical to the safe function of the facility? The average turnover rate right now is running close to 30%. You've got some facilities that I've saw, their average turnover rate is at 16%. But you've got some that is 52%. So look at the training that you've got going out the door. The money that you've spent on those folks to train them, the experience. You know, I don't want an officer sitting in my triage area, the booking area, because that's that's a very critical area whenever they're first bringing an inmate in the door. And they're giving you all their information. That's where we don't know nothing about this inmate potentially. And we have to gather all that information. They're making an assessment. If they don't have medical on post, they may be making, hopefully they're trained in some type of a, to make those medical assessments. Well, that's why I teach to do a medical, either a medically trained officer or a medical professional that's there to make that decision. But that's a very critical area. That is not the area that you want your new staff. I want Sally or Bobby there, who's been there 10 years, that can assess someone that, yes, I'm telling you I don't drink, but I can look at you right now and see that you appear to be under the influence of something. So I'm not just going to take your information and jot it down. I'm going to make an observation based on that. And then we need to get some type of an intervention uh, as soon as possible, depending on the current situation. But the turnover rate can relate to pay. I agree with that. But in most cases, the number one thing officers will will put on their list as far as why they've left or why they're leaving is not pay. Believe it or not, a lot of times it's how they're treated in the institution by the administration. And I'm, I'm teaching a uh, leadership course right now. The main thread throughout the whole training of this uh, leadership course is showing your people that you care. That doesn't cost anything, but that can help your turnover rate exponentially. And when I started in the business, we came to work at our agency thinking, I'm going to make a career here. I'm going to retire from here. And I keep looking, you know, I, I started my 401k donation also, although we had a pension coming, but still I wanted to start a 401k. I started that back then because I knew I was going to be there. The folks we've got coming in the door right now, they they do not know life without the internet. It's instantaneous gratification from obtaining information. If I have a question, I can find the answer out right now. And what basically they will tell us is, I'm going to give you about three to five years of my life, and then I'm going to get bored and I'm going to go some, do something else. What can we do to retain those folks? Well, they want education. They want training, even if it's an elective. Let's say, you know, instead of the core training that we must get, what if it's nothing more than gang signs? And then you task one of your officers or your deputies, task them with putting that together. So they feel a little bit like they have basically been pulled into the decision making of the facility. They have buy-in because I'm now creating this training program. And then they present it and they get that extra training for the other staff. So you've got a win-win situation. And that's just a couple of things that you can do in order to help retain staff. 
How do we get the administrators to see the importance of training? Are there any national standards that the jails and prisons have to follow? The only thing that we can do to change their outlook, if you've got some of these old heads that are thinking, you know, I know how to run a facility because I've been running one for the last, you know, 25 years. Hopefully those folks are going out and getting some type of a national level training, such as your American Jail Association, your National Institute of Corrections, your ACA training, something out there that they can go to get something where they get enlightened on. You know, I was in the business for over 20 years. I learned something each and every day. And there's more out there. I've learned more even since I've left. But getting those folks to see that, you know, the reason why we're doing this now is because that's how we've always did it. We've got to get away from that thought process. There is no mandated standards, but there is recommended standards. The American Jail Association and the American Correctional Association came together and created a set of core standards many years ago. And then since then, they've been changed. They call them ACA standards. The ACA primarily deals with prisons whereas the AJA deals with the jails. But they came together and created these standards. So they're recommended, and they're kind of like the gold standard. So you come down to actually the only mandated is either your case law or in states that have minimum jail standards. Now, sometimes, though, now there's 13 states out there who has no standards whatsoever, okay? No minimum jail. Sheriff, here's your jail. Run it the best you can. Uh, so, no, there is no national standard except for those state mandated that have those type of standards for, for the jails to follow. And you have to just go out. That's one thing about the jails now. You have to go out and find that stuff. We did not have this type of a thought process in running our jail back in 99, and they're still having it 2021. And uh, But, you know, with that turnover rate, well, I'm staying. I'm not leaving. Well, then what happens is you've got the overtime. Granted, I'm making a lot of money. I just don't have any time to spend it because I'm making this overtime. It's a budgetary hit for the, the facility or the county or the state, depending on if it's a state prison. But over a period of time, you're going to get burnt out. And then I can either decide to stay with this good money, but I'm always at my facility or be with my family. I mean, we all in our field, in our professions have missed ball games. We've missed some things that we wish that we were able to go to due to the fact of the obligations for our, our position in order to provide for a family. We know that. But when it gets to where you're actually missing most, some of these folks will say, you know what? And again, I just told you about the new culture here in the last few years where they come in and say, I'm going to give you about three to five years. Well, guess what? I may only give you two now because you want me to be there all the time. So that's just another detriment of this turnover rate that we've got to get fixed. And again, treating people right and giving them some training is some of the cheaper ways of going about retaining folks. One of the things that I've learned traveling across the U.S. and training agencies is that the problems each of us face every day are the same. It doesn't matter if you're working in Rochester, New York, Topeka, Kansas, or Santa Clara, California. The problems are the same. It also doesn't matter if you're working the streets or the cell blocks. We're all in the same boat. And that's the story we have to tell. Blue Canary is here to help you tell your stories. And I couldn't do that without the help of some very generous sponsors. Let's take a quick break to hear from one. Help your team rise to increasing expectations with Agency 360's cloud-based software. Whether it is for the training of new employees or annual performance evaluations, Agency 360 can help trainers and supervisors streamline documentation, create consistency, and communicate clearly. Help retention by setting the tone and culture early with Agency 360. Learn more at agency360.com. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y 360.com. 
Thank you for joining. As always, I'm curious what questions you're getting asked. What isn't the news covering? What story needs to be told? Connect with me at bluecanarypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.